Good morning. Welcome again to In Town. Glad that you have chosen to join us in worship this morning. Well, as a pastor in Alabama on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, you weren't assured that anyone was going to show up for church, but here in Portland, hardly anyone cares. So you're all here, and I'm glad that you're here, and I hope you have a wonderful and encouraging time worshiping with us this morning. We've been going through a sermon series entitled Songs of Hope, taking a look at various psalms and attaching different experiences, different human emotions, uh, different aspects of human existence, and then praying those things. And this morning we come, at, come to praying our doubts in Psalm 73. You can follow along somewhat in your bulletin, though. I'm going to read the whole thing. We don't have the whole thing printed for you in the bulletin just for space reasons. So this version is just slightly different. If I had planned ahead, I would have brought the actual version that we're, that's in your, in your bulletin. But this morning we're reading from a slightly different one. I'm going to read the whole psalm. This is our psalm reading, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning, this passage would be 
a comforting place for those who are hurting, that it would be a safe place for those who bring their doubts, that it would be an encouraging time for those among us who are weak. But Father, this will only happen if you let us see Jesus, if he meets us in this worship service and in this psalm. Would you embrace us now in his life and his death and his resurrection? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a a difficult psalm. It's a hard psalm. It says some very troubling things. But it's asking a question that all of us, whether we're Christians or not, get to at some point, that we ask at some point. Why should I do anything good? Why be good? What's the point of being good? And maybe Billy Joel was thinking of this psalm when he wrote the following. Well, they showed you a statue and told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. But they never told you the price that you pay, things that you might have done. Only the good die young. No one? They say, he goes on, there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I can't say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Now, this psalm comes to a slightly different conclusion than Billy Joel, but it's honest, and it doesn't cut corners, and it doesn't resort to pious platitudes or just offers of quid pro quo from God. But what it does give us, well, you'll have to wait just a moment before we find that out. We have to go through the crisis that this psalmist has, a crisis that leads to a different conclusion or a renewal, if you will. We're going to look just at those two things, at Asaph's crisis in the first part of the psalm and then his conclusion, his renewal. Now, Asaph, we don't know much about him. He's the writer or the transcriber of this psalm, but what we do know is that he's losing his balance. When you lose your balance physically, what happens is that your eye receives something that your brain can't quite process. It doesn't know how to compute it. And so therefore, your foot steps somewhere that maybe it shouldn't. Your brain allows your head to get too far away from your feet, and you lose your balance. Now, spiritually, when you see something that conflicts with what you know or what you believe is true in your head, and it conflicts with that, it causes a misstep in your heart. You lose balance in your heart. And Asaph starts this way, "'Surely God is good to Israel.'" to those who are pure in, pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Asaph is losing his balance in following God. He's having a bit of a crisis of faith. We need to see what's going on around him and what's going on inside of him. First of all, what's going on around him? Verse 3, he sees the prosperity of of the wicked. He takes a good look around and he doesn't like what he sees because what he sees is hardened, callous, proud people who are successful and happy and have very little care. And he seems to have been meditating or carefully observing this for some time because he gives us quite a detailed assessment of what's going on in these lives. And beginning in verse 4, he says that their bodies are healthy and strong. 
This is sort of like if you go to the gym and you see the most beautiful, fittest people that don't seem to really work that hard. It just comes naturally to them. Yet while we work and work and nothing really seems to change, their bodies are healthy and strong. And then it says that they have no struggles. Now, it's a very obscure Hebrew term here, and it's very hard to interpret. But it says, the older translation said they have no bands in death or no pangs in death. And what translators have said is what what he's saying about these people is though they don't follow God, though they have no promise of eternity, that yet they don't fear death. They have no fear of impending doom. They're arrogant and boastful, belittling and mistreating of others. And they're cynical about God. They ignore God and even laugh at God. And then there's a key phrase in the midst of those verses from 4 to 11. In the middle you see verse 7. Their eyes swell out with fatness. How do we say that in our day? They're fat and happy. They're fat and happy and their hearts overflow with follies. It's the exact opposite of what Asaph said in verse 1, that God is good to those who are pure in heart. No, these people are fat and happy. They're doing whatever they want. Their hearts are given to follies, and they're having the time of their lives. They're partying like rock stars. You look back through rock and roll history, you see these cautionary tales of Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and John Bonham and all of those who party themselves into an early grave. And you think, wow, I don't want to do that. But for every one of those, there's probably 10 or 50 Keith Richards, who I admit is not looking so great these days. But if you read his autobiography and you see what that man poured into his, into his body over decades, and you think he's still 70 He's approaching 70 and doing okay. They're partying like rock stars. And they're having the time of their lives. The problem that Asaph sees is that this is working for them. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Whoever this writer is, if it's Asaph or if he is transcribing for David, what we do know is that they have a pretty vital relationship with God, and yet when they look around, they're confounded, they're confused, they're surprised by what is going on, that the wicked prosper while God's people are in exile, while God's people are in pain. But the problem was deeper than what he saw around him, what was going on around him. There was a problem with what was going on inside of him as well. What was this? Verse 3, envy. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw. Asaph looks around and he sees these self-absorbed, self-indulgent people. And he doesn't say, first of all, well, they'll get their due. Just wait till what's coming for them. He says, no, I was envious. What does that mean? He wanted to be like them. He wanted to experience life like they did. How often do you look around and get envious of what others have? How often are you looking around at relationships or people on TV even and be jealous, become jealous of their life? Maybe it's the one who plays hard at at your office and puts off work. They're lazy and yet they get the promotion. Maybe it's the person who only cares for herself and yet it seems like she's able to acquire everything that she wants. 
There's the guy at work who lies and cheats and stabs people in the back, and yet no one catches on in upper management. They keep promoting him above you. Envy is a very normal and natural human emotion. But what the psalm says is it's also very slippery spiritual ground. And this is the, the one sin, the one at least of the seven deadly sins, that doesn't really have a payoff. Joseph Epstein, the journalist, says, Envy, of course, is the only one of the seven deadly sins that is no fun whatsoever. Lust, drunkenness, gluttony, they can all be fun for a time. Envy is not at all. Envy is no fun. And it creates, secondly, spiritual bitterness. Verses 13 and 14, All in vain have I kept my mouth, I mean, my heart pure. Again, striking contrast to the first verse. God is good to those who are pure in heart. He says, not in my case. All in vain have I kept my heart pure. Asaph is saying, I've wasted my time. Maybe all of my efforts at living a faithful life have gotten me nowhere. Is my life in any better shape? Is my bank account any bigger? No, I've wasted my time. None of it was worth it. This is what we mean by praying our doubts. When I titled the sermon, Praying Our Doubts, I didn't mean our intellectual doubts of whether or not God exists, but it's more our existential doubts of whether he's worth following, whether he's really good, whether he's faithful. And those are doubts that all of us can have, whether we're Christians or not. Is God worth following? Have I wasted my time? in believing in him. And he then goes a bit farther, from envy to bitterness to all day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. doesn't feel like just a coincidence that he's happened upon these circumstances, but that he feels like he's being punished, that he's suffering, and there's no end in sight. Envy, bitterness to despair. And maybe that's where you find yourselves this morning, somewhere on that spectrum. Envy or bitterness or despair are sort of a, a combination of all three. And underneath this experience, especially if you're a Christian, is a struggle with God's goodness and faithfulness. This Christianity thing made perfect sense and still, until you began to, to struggle with infertility while all of your friends got pregnant. This Christianity thing, God's goodness, made perfect sense until everyone else seems able to find a job except for you. Christianity was good and God was faithful until your last single friend got married. And you're fearful, maybe as Asaph is, that it won't ever get any better. There's no end in sight. And friends, you need to be comforted this morning that this is completely understandable, that praying this way is not shameful. That's why this psalm is here, that God understands where you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. There's a dramatic shift that happens in the psalm in verse 17, and it clues us into how envy, envy, bitterness, and despair can give way to hope, can be transformed actually into worship and joy. And friends, it can be better 
Life can be better than it is right now. But we need to see, first of all, or second of all, Asaph's renewal in the last half of the psalm. We need to see two things about this renewal, where it happened and how it happened. First of all, where it happened, verse 17. Asaph says he was troubled until what? Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Do you remember last week we talked about David, King David, who was on the run. He had been pushed out of Jerusalem by Absalom, his only son. And what does he lament? What is what brings up this, this anger, this, this desertion, is that he's not able to worship in the sanctuary. He's not able to be a part of gathered worship with God's people. And Asaph's renewal begins while worshiping with God's people. Up to this point in the psalm, Asaph has been interpreting life from a certain vantage point, but the presence of God in the sanctuary changes his perspective. And worship, friends, is the place where God renews us and adjusts our vision of life, where you begin to see things differently. You see them in light of God's ongoing redemption of your life, the lives around you, and also of the whole world. You see things differently. Katie and I had the opportunity to go to Mendocino, California this week, and we flew into San Francisco and then drove up at nighttime to Mendocino, which is about three hours up on the coast. But you have to get off the 101 and go through just forest and go through the redwood forest before you reach the coast. The one thing that you notice right off when you leave the 101 is that it's dark. You can't see anything except what's in front of the car. And the headlights will light up this beautiful strand of redwood trees, but they'll just pass by quickly. And you can't make out too much detail other than the fact that they're large. They're very big. And then you get to the coast, and you can't really see anything there either except for what's illuminated by the headlights. And so we drove three hours, mostly in the dark. We can't recognize how wonderfully beautiful this drive is. And we get to Mendocino, and then the next morning we open the blinds, and the sun comes in, and you can see the water, and you can see this glorious place that God has made. And it's amazing. It's stunning. You see, the beauty of it didn't change. We just couldn't see it. We couldn't see it as we were driving through, but when the sun came out the next morning, it hadn't changed. It was just illuminated. And that's what happens in worship. When you encounter the greatness of God in worship. It has a way of changing your perspective. It has a way of illuminating something that's already there, the beauty of God in a new way. It was there. He was near. He was present already, but you couldn't see it. You needed it to be illuminated. And what worship does is helps us interpret our experience in light of God rather than interpreting God by our experience. Worship is the place where God renews us and adjusts our vision of life. And we need to see this because too often we abandon worship in the midst of our doubts. We abandon our community in the midst of our life's crises. And if you've gotten nothing else from this series on the Psalms, I hope that you'll get that God wants you to wrestle with your doubts and wrestle with your tribulation, wrestle with your trials and your disappointments in the midst of worship, in the midst of community, that he invites you where you are, not where he wants you to be, not where he's going to take you, but he invites you where you are right now into his presence to be embraced. 
this psalm was a worship song. They sang it in worship. Can you imagine singing your doubts, singing that your abandonment, your despair, your bitterness, your envy? This was a worship song. Of course, you're to bring your doubts to worship. Of course, you're to bring yourself when you're still in process, when you haven't figured it all out. But we also need to see that worship doesn't answer every question or remove all mysteries. If we're, friends, meeting the actual God, then of course he's going to confound us from time to time. Of course we're going to have questions because he's too large, he's too majestic, he's too grand to fully comprehend. But a God that's that big will put your present struggles in a different light. A God who is too grand and majestic to fully comprehend certainly could have a reason why you are where you are and going through what you are that maybe you don't understand yet. Worship doesn't remove every confusion, but it's certainly there that Asaph begins to work through his misgivings. That's where it happened. But how did it happen? How was he renewed? Asaph remembered two things that he had forgotten in his moments of enviness and bitterness and despair. First of all, he remembered the relevance of eternity. This is verse 17. Then I understand, understood their final destiny. Now, he's not gloating here. He's not clapping his hands and reveling in other people's ultimate doom. What he's saying is that life can only be properly evaluated from a distance, and in this case, from the ultimate distance, from the end of all history, from the end of all things. And it's vital for you and I to learn to live with the end in view. And we already do this. We make decisions based upon potential outcomes. And what this psalm is inviting you and I to do is to make our decisions based upon a promised outcome, based upon the end of history, Not to do this, not to make decisions in light of potential consequences and outcomes is a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of childishness. If you think about your own kids, if you have children, what would they eat all day if you weren't there to provide meals for them? Well, ours would eat chips and ice cream nonstop. And they wouldn't go and make vegetables. They wouldn't go and get fruit necessarily. They would go get chips and ice cream. Because why? They're not thinking about tooth decay. They're not thinking about the deterioration of their bodies. They're not thinking about sugar crashes or anything like that. They're thinking about, what do I want right now? He remembered the relevance of eternity. He remembered not just potential outcomes, but the promised outcome. And then secondly, he remembered God himself is the greatest treasure. I wish we could do a whole other sermon on just these few verses, 23 to 26. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. These are staggering words, hard to comprehend words, hard to believe words, because what it's saying is that Asaph comes to the conclusion that if I lose everything and I still have you, God, I have all I really need. 
There's no way that if this is the first time you're hearing this or even the hundredth time that you're going to get that perfectly. We're all in progress. We're all in process trying to live this out. But that's where Jesus is taking his people to believe that if we lose everything and still have God, still have Jesus, still have the Holy Spirit, that you have everything that you need. It's not a pious denial of the pains and confusion of life, but it's a confident affirmation that God can sustain you through anything. And it's a declaration that God and God alone is the greatest treasure. We've talked about this numerous times that everyone here, including me, everyone here is living for something. And it's not always God. It can be any number of things. There's some treasure that you supremely value. And this treasure, because it rules your heart, therefore runs your life. It's the answer to what do you really want? What's your bottom line for life? What is your I gotta have this thing or else? And how do you respond when you don't get it? Envy comes up because something else has taken hold of your heart and it's become your true treasure. There's something or someone that you want more than him that he's not given you. And so therefore you envy those that have it. If we see God not as the ultimate thing, but the ultimate way to get things will not only be envious, but bitter and despairing. Let me say that again. If we see God not as the ultimate thing, but the ultimate way to get things will not only be envious, but bitter and ultimately despairing. And what we have is not God, but a business partner who we're living a contractual relationship with, a quid pro quo, If we're a postmodern rationalist, we'll say, God, I will obey you, I'll serve you, I'll believe you if, if you answer my questions, if you bow to my demands and how you reveal yourself, if you come to me as I want you to, then I'll believe. God, I'll obey you or serve you if. But Christians have a way of doing this as well. God, I will obey you and serve you and believe in you because... Because you have done all of these great things, because you have given me this, I will believe you. We don't have a God. We have a business partner. And as soon as our business partner doesn't live up to the contractual basis that, of that relationship, we'll dump him or we'll be angry or we'll walk away. Asaph comes to a different conclusion And he comes full circle back to where he started in verse 1, but only in a deeper and this time a richer way. It's not just God is good to Israel and therefore I'll serve him. You see, that's contractual. God, you've been good, therefore I will follow, therefore I will serve. Instead, it is good to be near God. Whatever the circumstances, it's good to be near God. Now, how does he come to realize this? We'll wrap it up this way. How does he come to know that God is the most worthy, valuable, and delightful treasure? What did Asaph see in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary? What happens there? A sacrifice. He realized that God was the kind of God who provides a substitute. And this is how we get from the Hebrew prayer book 
to the Christian prayer book. This is how we get to Jesus. We know far more than Asaph did of the goodness and faithfulness of God. Because in the ultimate sense, neither you nor I nor Asaph is pure in heart and righteous. Not in the ultimate sense. We have only a relative righteous. We don't have a right to say no fair. We don't have a right to say, ultimately, God, what you've done is wrong. We don't have a right to say no fair. Look at what I've done, and this, this is what you bring me. But you see, there was one. There was one who was holy, righteous, obedient, and completely pure in heart. Only one who could say, no fair, or I don't deserve this. Yet instead of pleading his case, he pleased, pleads ours. The one who could say, no fair. The only one who is ultimately righteous. The only one who could say, I don't deserve this. Willingly goes to a cross, suffering for your sin and for mine. The work of Jesus ultimately, friends, if you dive in deep enough, is the ultimate solution to envy and to our bitterness and to our despair. Life may be full of mystery. Life may be unfair. Life may be full of things that don't seem to add up. But Jesus is not a distant and disinterested God. He is good and loving and gracious and near. And the challenge for each of us this morning, wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum, is to apply this to our own story. To see the extravagant display of the love of Jesus on the cross and say, that was for me. If God went to suffer on the cross for me, then surely what I'm experiencing must be somehow for my good, some way for my good, that ultimately what comes to me is for me. It doesn't mean that I have to say that this is easy. It doesn't mean that I have to smile during the very difficult things of life. And it certainly doesn't mean that we have the right to offer very simple platitudes to those who are suffering. But it does mean that suffering is not without meaning. And if the death of Jesus convinces us of God's love, if the cross convinces us that he is near and that he loves you, the resurrection of Jesus convinces us that God has a future for us, that God has a future for you. No matter what your circumstances are now, that not only does he love you, but he has a future for you. The Bible says that Jesus' resurrections, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. The first fruits are a foretaste of things to come. They signal a coming harvest. And the harvest of Jesus' resurrection signals a new creation where things change, where things get better. On the cross, he enters into your story near and present and graciously. In the resurrection, he invites you into his story to say, one day, all of my longings for good that are now unfulfilled will be satisfied. And if I'm assured of the ultimate outcome, that Jesus will one day come and remake all things, then the things which plague me and haunt me will evaporate into nothing. That's a way to change perspective on your circumstances. It doesn't make light of your trials, but it transforms them. It puts them in a different light. 
And let me just end with this. This is the song that we'll be singing in just a moment as we come from the Lord's table. O Lamb of God, still keep me near thy wounded side. Tis only there in safety and peace I can abide. What foes and snares surround me, what lusts and fears within, the grace that sought and found me alone can keep me clean. It's not a life that is devoid of pain or doubt or trial, but it's a life of never-ending grace and peace. And that's what we claim as we come to the table. And so I invite you to take hold of Jesus as we pray. Father, I pray that you would comfort those who are hurting. I pray that you would sit near to those who are in pain, those who are experiencing loss, to those who see everyone else get the very thing that they want and keep pleading with you for it and don't receive it. Would you nonetheless sit close to them and show them that ultimately you have their good in mind and that you have the good of the whole world in mind? I pray that we would look towards this ultimate promised outcome that Jesus is remaking all things, including us. Would you start with us? Would you enter into the dark places, the doubting places of our heart and transform them and give us joy? Give us joy and peace and grace as we come to the table yet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.